0: Open hearts. Let the ancient words impart. And I would pray, especially today, we will look at ancient words. Some words today we will look at were written more than two thousand years ago, twenty-seven hundred years ago. Would pray that those words would impart the same life to us that they have imparted to people for centuries. Your word is tried and true; it is tested, and people have found it helpful, encouraging. Strengthening and I pray that would be our experience here this morning. So help us, O oh Lord, I pray. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, yesterday Avon and I went am I on? I'm, I'm not on. Am I on? Am I on over there? Right here. So how how about if I do this? We'll just we'll just do this. Um Yesterday, Yvonne and I attended a funeral for uh, Darren Weeby's grandfather, and uh, I would say it was one of the best funerals I've ever attended. You think about that, you attend a funeral, and you say, wow, I told Darren, I walked in, I said, that was a great funeral, and he said, yes, and uh, I told Tina and Ryan, they were there too, I said, it was a great funeral, wasn't it? And uh, it was just so encouraging. Here's a man I never met, Darren had told me about this man, but what a good time it was to just reflect upon his life. Um, Darren's grandfather's name is Bertel Swanson, was never a pastor, but yet the testimony about this man was he was known far and wide for his love of God and his love of the Scriptures. I mean, that just came over and over and over again. He was a carpenter by trade who worked hard to support his family. He was a generous man at heart who gave much of himself and financially even to help others. He was a godly man whose influence went deep into his family He loved woodworking and gardening and poetry, hobbies that he used actually to glorify the Lord. During his life, he was eminently always involved in the church. He had the privilege of starting two churches, one in Loves Park and one on the east side of Rockford. His ministry continued even in his days of declining health at Fairhaven um, Retirement Center. He was constantly giving devotions to the people there who, who need it. He helped, he counseled them. He was known for his tremendous amount of Scripture memory that he had committed to life, to, to memory. Um, he was one who was known for his constant devotional life, his constant prayers regularly for those surrounding his life. And I was especially encouraged, I think, by the impact that he made on his family, uh, particularly even down to his grandchildren. It has encouraged me to even have a vision. He died at 97, so some of his grandchildren are older. And um, just they gave great testimony that. gave me a vis- even a vision to think about my children's children and the impact that I can have as a result of, of what he did. And he he experienced and personified the blessing of Psalm 1. As Ted Olson, who did the, uh, the funeral message, used a portion of this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But how blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like day and night. He'll be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. That's really a, a picture of brutal swanson. And and I think one of the things I most appreciate about that funeral was the effect that it had upon me as I left. I, mean, I left really encouraged and challenged by the life of this godly man, directed towards Christ and directed to him. Where alone my, my strength comes. And though I, I never met this man, it really reminded me of the most important things in life. Just, you know, it's all done. 97 years old. What, what's the most important things in life? You know, it's just to be a godly man and to influence people for Christ. You know, it kind of has a great way of, of, of bringing it all down to a focus when you think about, okay, all my life. What has it got to be about? That's what has got to be about. It's walking rightly with the Lord and impacting others and you know sort of a reminder all of us need because how easy is it for for us to forget things come into our life which cloud eternity away don't they we need to remember and we need to remember the most important things in our life as we come this morning to second peter chapter 3 peter's going to give us some things to remember And I think that what Peter calls us to remember are really the most important things. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at only two verses because they're so rich. And verses 3 through 9 are so so important. I didn't want to shortchange them, so we will look at them next week. Really, 3 through 9 flow out of verses 1 and 2 and really keep the theme, but we'll focus on them next week. But they are especially appropriate this morning to call us to remember. Uh, At the end of my message today, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is a a time of remembering. And how appropriate Peter's message is for us, we think about remembering the Lord Christ in His Supper, as he told us to. But Peter writes this, This is now, beloved, (coughs) the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, and there's that key word, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, in many ways, Peter gives us here the, uh, the motive, the purpose in writing this epistle. It's not the main message of his epistle, but it's the, it's the main driving motive behind his writing the epistle. His main message is know and grow, but this tells us why he's bringing that main message. His purpose, he says, is to remind his readers... You can see that there in verse 1. He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Fundamentally, Peter's not imparting new information to his readers. Instead, he's bringing to remembrance those things which we already know, but that we need to be reminded about. It is interesting. One of the, one of the things that first struck me when I, I read this, or I thought about it, was how you can easily think that these words are misplaced. I mean, here he is right in the middle of his letter telling us why it is he's writing. They, how easily they would fit back in chapter 1. You know, after the greeting, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Right after verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And Then he might say, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. seems like it would fit really well there, but he doesn't. He fits it right here. And this has caused some stir and some theologians to even propose that, oh, perhaps this is another letter. Perhaps when he talks about the second letter, maybe he's talking about chapters 1 and 2, it's the first letter, and this is the second one. I don't believe that at all. But it it just says that if people are thinking about that, it shows that this purpose statement might be a little misplaced. But when you think about Scripture, it's not misplaced at all um, because often purposes of letters are right in the middle. When Paul wrote 1 Timothy, right in the middle, right in chapter 3, right at the end of chapter 3, he says, I write these things so that you may know how to conduct yourselves in the church of God. The uh, the Gospel of John, right at the end, John chapter 20, verse 31, speaks about how these things I've written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by leaving you may have life in His name. And the uh, First John chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The purposes are there at the end, in the middle, it's really okay, it's not much of a problem that the purpose comes here in the middle, but it is, in some sense, alarming. It kind of shakes us up a little bit to say, why does he tell us that now? And I think he tells us that now because it's important for us. It's important for us to remember it's not new stuff, it's the old stuff that we might easily forget. And I love the way how Peter's gentle with his readers. He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind. He tells them they have a sincere mind. He doesn't say, hey, you bubbling fools. <laughs> Did you forget it again? All right, one more time. Let me remind you. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, I know you have a, a sincere mind, which is a, a pure mind. I, I know your mind is right and you want to do the things that, uh, that please the Lord. You want to seek the way of truth. And, and, and I'm merely just going to tell you and, and give you what it is your sincere mind needs. It, it needs a healthy dose of reminder. Because all of us need reminding. You have a sincere mind. Let me just stir it up and just help you a little bit. Parents, next time you're thinking about reminding your children, maybe you can be gentle with them like Peter was and stir up their sincere mind by way of remembrance. Well, remembrance is all what verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 are all about. But we're just going to focus on one and two. I see four things here that we need to remember appropriately. My message is titled this morning, Things to Remember. I I think these are the most central things in life that we need to remember. My first point is this. Remember the first epistle. Remember the first epistle. I see that right there in verse 1 when Peter says, Now this is the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder... Peter here is talking about a second letter. The first letter is 1 Peter. And I believe what he's saying is this is the second time I'm stirring you up by reminder. I stirred you up when I wrote 1 Peter and I'm stirring you up now when I'm writing 2 Peter. In fact, the English Standard Version does a good job of bringing out how Peter in this phrase is talking about both his first epistle and his second epistle. The ESV says it this way. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them... I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And so he wants us to remember the first epistle. And he wants us to remember the second epistle. So maybe you can guess what my second point is going to be. If you have it right there in your notes, maybe you can guess what that is. It's not going to be rocket science. But it's another thing that we need to remember. Peter calls us to remember 1 Peter. Now we can just, just bypass this and just kind of go on. I know some preachers, I listened to their messages this week on First Peter 3, just took this and just shot right past this. But I said, you know what, if Peter's saying, I need to stir you up by way of remembrance, I, I thought it would be good for us to slow down and really think about what he's calling us to remember. Because I know how easy is it for us to forget. Uh, I'm not exactly right on my statistics, but it goes something like this. If a preacher preaches in our sermon, whatever sermon he preaches, by the time you get out the door, you're going to remember about 10% of it. And you come back next week, and you're going to have remembered last week about 2% of it. And um, by the time you're four or five weeks out, how much are you going to remember? Very little. Very little. Like, for, Does anyone know what my sermon title was last week? They didn't grow. Good. Good. How about the week before that? Okay, so this is two weeks out now. We're stretching. Maybe some of you are going to fumble through your Bible. I know I got my notes in here. I know I got my notes in here. <laughs> do you know, Andy? God knows how. That's right. And you could just you think about that. So you think about First Peter. We're going to review. We're going to spend some time here reviewing First Peter because it says, "Remember First Peter." And so I just say, "What do you remember about First Peter?" I hope four words come to mind. Let's say them together. First Peter, right? suffer now glory later. All right? But that's a that's a big thing and we could just say, okay, yep, we've got 1 Peter all set. But I asked you, can you pull up from 1 Peter where it is that suffer now glory later comes? Maybe not, but I want to remind you this morning. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. This theme comes up right out of the gates <clears throat> verses 3 through 9. <clears throat> Peter's going to tell us of the glory that's coming. And then he's going to say, but you're suffering now. That's okay, because the glory later is worth all the suffering now. Watch, look at the glory. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, which will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now this is all glory. It's all describing the inheritance that awaits us. It's undefiled, it's unstained, it is unfading and it is on all, all its brilliance. Whatever it was when it started is going to be what it is later. It just shines great. And so great is the glory that Paul Peter calls us to rejoice now. Look at verse 6. In this You greatly rejoice. What are you rejoicing in? You're rejoicing in the glory later. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Now you're suffering. But the end and the glory later is causing you to rejoice. And that's what Peter's saying. And Peter says you need a reminder. And so we need to be reminded of that this morning. Perhaps there's suffering in your life that's going on. You need to remember the glory that is to come, and that's the thing that's going to press you on until that day. I'm sure that's the thing that helped Bertle Swanson as he was getting towards the end of his life, thinking of the glories. In fact, a, a poem was read, I, I believe, just about the glories to come. And um, it was really it'd be great if we get one of his poems in the weekly word, too. so "Suffer now, a glory later." We see it again coming up in uh, chapter two, verses 11 and 12. I'm just going to you know, pull out a few verses here. We could go a lot because it was all throughout the epistle. But here, 11 and 12, we see, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, glorify God in the day of visitation. Here we see suffering. We see a war being waged with your flesh in verse 11. We see Gentiles slandering you as evildoers in verse 12. And yet, in the midst of that, you're suffering by your own flesh which is waging war against your soul. You're, you're suffering from other people who are maligning you and, 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 and bringing you down, even though you're doing good deeds, even though you're doing righteously. What is it that presses you on? What presses you on is to know that there's glory later. Verse 11 even postulates this, that we are aliens and strangers. It's almost as if we come from a different world. And we do. We come from a world beyond. That's where we're going. We're heading towards that glory later. This world is not our home. We're living for another, right? We're living for the glory that is to come. And then verse 12 says, you know, even in the midst of all of the the slander and difficulties, you keep your behavior excellent because God's glory is going to come and as you walk in a righteous way, God will be glorified on that day. You suffer now, the glory's later. And chapters 2 and 3 are filled with thoughts about suffering. Uh, you may be suffering as under an unjust human institution, government. You may be suffering as a slave to an unjust master. You may be suffering under an unbelieving husband. And yet in all of these, through all this suffering, Peter calls us in all these things, walk righteously, keep, keep, keep your focus, keep, keep walking purely before the Lord, and then brings up the example of Christ right in the middle of these things. It says, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. We are to suffer now like Christ did. And how did He endure His suffering? Right at the end of verse 23, he said even while he was reviling, he didn't revile while suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself that God is the one who's going to make things right in the end. And certainly Christ knew of the glory that was on his mind before. And he knew that the sovereign Lord would ensure the glory would come in the end. That's right there. And we're going to look at one last verse along this theme, just to drive this home again. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. I love this verse because it includes the word suffering and it includes the word glory right in it. After you have suffered for a little while, there you see the suffering. He considers the suffering this present age just a little while. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Listen, though He's suffering now, what's He doing? He's looking towards the glory of that time when He will perfect you and He will strengthen you and He will confirm you and He will establish you in ultimate perfection there in glory. And Peter says, "Are suffering now for so a little while. What does he mean by that? A little while. He means this life on earth is a little while. Seventy years of suffering is a little while compared to to 10 million years of glory. It is. As John Newton, who suffered greatly, said, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. After 10,000 years, right? eternity is still out there. And that makes 70, 80, 90 years, even if you live very old, to be a little while. So let's remember the first epistle. Let's remember that we're called here to suffer on earth. Let us remember that we need to trust the Lord for the glory that is to come. Let's remember the words of Paul. The suffering of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8.17 Well, Peter doesn't call us just to remember the first epistle. He also calls us to remember the second epistle. That's what he's saying. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. And in this letter, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Fundamentally, Second Peter is a book of reminder. It's not writing anything new. It's writing things that they knew about. And just we spent some time reflecting upon 1 Peter, I want to spend some time reflecting upon the message of 2 Peter. I want to be reminded. Now you know how I have put the theme of 2 Peter. What is it? Three words? Know and grow. Well, Let's find where that is in Second Peter just to remind us. One thing to know that little phrase. Another thing to see where it comes out here in Second Peter. The first thing we need to know is chapter 1, verse 3. Perhaps the highlight of the book. Perhaps the key message of the book. <clears throat> we need to know that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. And there you see the knowing. It is through the true knowledge of Christ that we have everything that we need to grow in Him. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. What is life? But it's living. What is godliness? But it is living in a godly way. And that, Peter will later call us to, is to grow in Christ. We have all that we need. We don't need another teaching. We don't need another experience. We don't need another friend. We don't need another revelation. We have it all in Christ. And Peter's purpose is to remind us of that. You're complete in Christ. You have everything at your disposal. And, and I think it's good for us to hear that again because how easily we forget that in, in Christ are all the riches and treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's what we need. Is We just need Jesus we need to be reminded of this because we easily forget we're the world pulling us the other way. This brought home to me this week on my day off. I was in loop Rose on Monday and uh, changing my oil and I was there reading a book. And uh, you know, this is a book I, I read. I read this book on Monday, just uh, started reading it, couldn't put it down, just read it. Uh, called Finishing Strong by Steve Ferrar, just talking about ending life well is what he's talking about. So I am here reading the book. You know, I was in the beginning of the book, it was Monday morning. He's reading the book kinda of like this, so the guy's reading, you know, so I got other two other men here in the waiting room with me, and a guy was looking at the book and he, he saw the title and he said, Oh, Finishing Strong, it sounds like a, a good book. Are you part of a men's group? And I said, No. Yeah, but just kinda, of, you know, started to see maybe he was interested a little bit knew it and is that just focus on being a father? And I said, well, no, it focuses about all of, all of life, right? Being faithful to Christ until the end. And then I, I read a portion of the book a little bit for him. And the portion of the book I read talked about how people in Scripture, some finished poorly, some finished so-so, but some finished well. And the, the premise of the book is to finish strong, finish well, like those in the, the Scripture did. And then uh, as I told him that, I kind of started to interact with him on these things. He said, do you know what the secret to finishing well is? I said, well, this, this book's about that, but what, what do you think? What, what, what's, what's your thoughts on that? He said, I'll, I'll tell you, though, the one thing that's needful to finish well. And I was thinking, you know what? I, I perked my ears up thinking maybe this is a word from the Lord in terms of just saying, what, what is it that I really need to, to finish well? And here's what he said. He said, the one thing you need to finish well, that we all need to finish well, is miracles. That's what we need. We need miracles. And I thought about it, and I politely... You know what I, I? would disagree with that a little bit. I mean, I think about the uh, the, the people of and before he, he told me about kind of study someone does. If someone's seen a miracle, then they continue on, you know, and it, it really helps them. And I said I, I disagree with that because I think about the people in um, in Exodus when they came out of Egypt they'd seen the miracles of the plagues. And so I named a few of them, like the frogs and the gnats and the insects and the darkness and the locusts. And, and they'd seen these miraculous things. And yet, as soon as they left Egypt, what they do? They complained and murmured against the Lord because they lacked faith to believe that God was going to continue to persevere them. But he said, no, no, that's, that's what they need. He wouldn't, he wouldn't hear of it. He said, our God is a miracle-working God. It's miracles that keep us strong. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if you're looking for miracles to help you in your walk of faith, you've missed it. You've missed the message of Second Peter, and you need reminding. You don't need those things out there. You've got everything you need in Christ, so trust in Him, is what Peter says. And know that. If you're going to grow in Christ, you need to know that you already have everything that you need. Well, a couple of that. With, uh, I came home from my errand and was talking with my oldest daughter, Carissa, and uh, I'd given her assignment over Christmas break, and uh, her assignment was to read John Piper's book called "The Roots of Endurance." and um, you know it's, you know three stories, stories about John Newton, Charles Simeon, and William Wilberforce, and she used to read one section each week, and at the end of that, she used to write me a paper called "What I Learned from the Roots of Endurance." and so she she wrote this paper and and I'll quote the last paragraph from this paper that she wrote. She said this, what these three British men all had in common was that they all had incredible endurance and patience i mean that that's that's the premise of of Piper's book, Roots of Endurance. Um, William Wilberforce endured and endured and endured to see slavery abolished, and um, Charles Simeon just endured in immense church difficulties and and John Newton continued to press on as well and she said. Through, they all persevered even through the toughest of trials and temptations. At the root of their endurance, for the most part, seemed to be their devotion to spending time in the Bible and in prayer every day. If we can learn from these men to keep Christ at the center of all we do, think, and say, perhaps we too will have invincible perseverance like John Newton, Charles Simeon, and William Wilberforce. That is is Second Peter, isn't it? Second Peter 1, three. That is, they spent time, as Chris has said, their devotion to spending time in the Bible and prayer every day. What is that? That's just learning about God, knowing God, letting, letting the truth of Christ just saturate everything that we have. That's how they kept on persevering. And that's how we can grow in Christ is to keep on knowing there. And if you're trusting Christ for your salvation, you have everything you need. He's given us... Faith, he's given us grace and peace, given us promises, given us everything. And the question then comes then, are you growing? Verses five through seven speaks then about how it is that with this knowledge of Christ, how it is that we should grow, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self control, in your self control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. Here we see Peter describing this this life that's increasing, that is growing. In fact, he says, verse 8, if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, there's growing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For you lack these qualities, verse 9 says, is blind or short-sighted? Have forgotten his purification from his former sins. So what, what Peter is saying is this we have everything we have in Christ, so be all the more diligent in your faith to see these kind of characteristics cultivated moral excellence and knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness. And 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 you get the sense here that is we're adding to it, we're increasing in this, we're growing. He says, If these are yours and are increasing, then you're doing well. And if they're not, you you're not doing well. And that's the importance of knowing and growing. And Peter Will never fail to tire to remind his readers of this. Look at verse twelve. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. And you might be sitting there today, and says, I, "I know these things, Steve. I know know and grow. I've got I got this plant in my kitchen that I see every day. that says know and grow. I got Second Peter. Well, I'm reminding you again today because that's the purpose of Second Peter. That's what he's saying in chapter three, verse one. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder and you need to know it. And Peter says, I'm not going to grow tired, always being ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right. It is the right thing to do. It's the right thing for Peter to do. It's the right thing for me to do as your pastor. To stir you up by way of reminder. And Peter said, My time is short knowing that laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. That's also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will be diligent so that any time after my death, the departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. What he said in chapter 1 is what he said in chapter 3. You need reminding. It's always, Peter is always willing to do so. It's the burden of my message this morning. And if Peter repeated himself twice, once in chapter 1 and again in chapter 3, about the importance of reminder, I think it's good for us to spend some time on it really dwelling it up upon it because the priority that Peter's placed, repeating these things twice. Whenever you read your scripture, if something's repeated twice, you gotta say, okay, maybe that's important. And it's important for us this morning. It's compelled for me to go through two verses, though it is interesting that if, even if you look at chapter two, I'm gonna give you a, a little preview here about other things we should remember. You should remember the words spoken beforehand by the Holy Prophets, right? My my point three is going to be you should remember The word spoken by the prophets. My point four is going to be you should remember the word commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And we could even add a fifth point there which is next week's message. Know this first of all. In the last day's mockers will come with their mocking. Know of Christ's second coming. It just all flows from that. But I didn't want to shortchange the second coming which we'll get at next week. But here we see Peter saying, I'm just reminding you. I'm just reminding of you you of these things. And In fact, after he said that in chapter 1, I'm going to remind you of these things. He goes back to this thing about knowing that the Scripture is sufficient. He speaks here in verses 16 through 21 about how we didn't follow this cleverly devised tale, but we're following the truth. We're eyewitnesses of His glory. We're earwitnesses of His glory. And we have the prophetic word which is made more sure. Right? Follow the word which you have. Everything is true in Christ. And as we saw last week... The fundamental problem with these false teachers is that they didn't grow. Oh, they knew Jesus, and they knew about Him, as verse 20 says. They escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What did they do? They, they went back into those things. They were in them and, and got entangled in them again. And see, they didn't grow in their, their faith. They, they went back into things. They actually reduced, and as a result, they denied the Master who bought them they turned away, verse 21 says, from the holy commandment handed on to them. They didn't grow. But Peter says, chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's Peter's message. And I just want to remind you of that. The importance of knowing Christ and growing in Him. Well, let's look at my third point this morning. You already know what it is. Remember the words of the prophets. Prophets. Peter writes in the first half of verse 2, you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the prophets. Peter says, remember the words of Isaiah, and remember the words of Jeremiah, and remember the words of Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Joel, and Amos, and Hosea, and Obadiah, which they wrote beforehand. So you know what we need to do this morning, right? We need to remember all of Isaiah, and all of Jeremiah, and all of Ezekiel. It's a lot, huh? We might be here more than one message. So there's so much there of remembering what was spoken beforehand. You say, well, what does this mean? It's a lot to remember. Are we going to review everything? I say, no. But you say, what is Peter meaning when he says, remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets? Does he mean everything? Well, in some sense I think he means everything. But at least we can get a clue if we go back into First and Second Peter and see, okay, what prophets did he quote? Because maybe those are the prophets that He's talking about us that we need to remember. In 2 Peter, He speaks very little about prophets, only mentioning them briefly in verse verse 20 and 21. Notice first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. If they spoke from God, they are worthy of our being heard. They are worthy of our remembering. But beyond that, Second Peter doesn't speak much of that, but in first Peter it is astonishing how much Peter goes back to the prophets of the words spoken beforehand. And so all I want to do is just go back into first Peter. If he says you need to remember the words spoken beforehand by the prophets, say which words, Peter, let's just look at the words that Peter shares with us from the prophets he's talking about. Turn back to first Peter chapter one verses ten to twelve. He talks about in generic terms the struggle of these prophets but it shows that probably it gives an insight what is exactly what he's talking about here. We remember the words spoken beforehand by the prophets. It has to do probably with the salvation that's coming, the coming Christ. The prophets that spoke beforehand were directing their attention upon the Messiah. In verse 10 it says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Here Peter describes the the work of these prophets after they had written. They were searching and inquiring into the messages. Indeed, they wrote better than they knew because the Holy Spirit was moving them. And they studied their own writings and they studied their own writings to understand who it is the Christ would be and and when it is that the Christ would come. And they knew the Christ would have to suffer and they knew that Christ would experience glories later. Isn't that great? The Christ is going to come to suffer, and then He's going to be in glory, and so likewise we follow the example of Christ. We too will suffer in glory. Let's reflect upon these words. Think about the prophets. They knew full well that it was prophesied that He'd live a difficult life. They, they knew that He would suffer. They didn't know how or in what manner, but certainly we know that Christ suffered and died. And yet, here's the marvelous thing, the truth about the Gospels, the suffering and the death of Christ is the path to His glory. And His entrance into glory is our entrance into glory. As Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20 says, that Jesus entered heaven as a forerunner for us. He went first. Now He's a high priest for us, but really His entrance is what opens the gate and brings us along to get there. We follow the same path. He's gone before us and blaze the trail for us to follow and we follow Him by faith, trusting that in the sacrifice of Christ He's washed away our sins and we can enter heaven holy and pure and spotless and blameless. But that's not the only time that Peter's talking about the prophets. Over in chapter 2, he mentions a bunch more. Look at verse 6. He says, This is contained in Scripture. What's contained in Scripture? About how Christ is a living stone. He is the one who's rejected. He is the choice and precious cornerstone. What verse four says? He says, this "Is it contained in Scripture?" From Isaiah 28 verse 16: "Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed." I think Peter's saying this. Listen, think about what Isaiah wrote, 700 B.C., and he's writing about this this choice stone, this precious cornerstone that's going to be placed and that he who believes in that choice and precious cornerstone will in no ways be disappointed. He's talking about the the Messiah who's coming when righteousness again will prevail. And the glories of that time is that the one who believes in Christ will not be disappointed. Rather, the Messiah and all His benefits will be ours by faith in Him. That's what verse 6 is talking about. And so when Peter's saying, Remember the words spoken beforehand by the prophets. I think he's talking about remember the prophecies of Christ's coming and the blessings there that you have by faith in Him. Verse 7, This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Now technically this isn't from one of the prophets. This is Psalm 118, verse 22. But it acts prophetically. It was spoken long before Christ came. And it directs us to anticipate the coming of the Messiah. The the Messiah would come in such a way that the builders would reject this stone. They'd say, get out of here. They don't want that. It refers to the Jews who refused to receive their Messiah. Instead, they crucified Him. And yet, then the marvelous results came about. As a result of that, it says this one, the rejected one, became the very cornerstone. And later on in Psalm 118, it says, this is marvelous in our eyes. Right? We marvel and rejoice at this rejected stone. That's like rejoicing, glorying in the cross of Christ. It was long beforehand predicted. It's good for us to remember the Messiah being cut off. That it's no accident, didn't keep, catch God by surprise. Rather, it was in God's plan. It was spoken beforehand. And we need to remember those kind of words. It was spoken beforehand. The Messiah would, would come and be crucified. And that He would raise again that we might live through Him. Well, verse 8 is another prophetical quote. This one comes from Isaiah 8.14 talking about those who don't believe. calls Christ a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. verse speaks about how people come to hate the Lord. They hate this stone... They reject this stone and this stone actually becomes a stone of stumbling for them. And Peter applies it to the Messiah. When He comes, people will hate Him and they will stumble over Him. That's how God is. That's how God has said it. We need to set Christ in front of people so that they either accept Him or reject Him and stumble over Him. And when people hear the message of the Messiah, sometimes it's astonishing that people don't believe but if they don't believe the message of the Messiah, it's not because there's some accident God, God said, the prophet spoke beforehand that there is going to be this stone of stumbling that people will stumble over. So don't be discouraged. Press on, share the gospel, realize that people will stumble over it. And he continues to quote Old Testament passages right there in verse nine. He picks up all these phrases, which are Old Testament phrases. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. These come from Exodus and Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Malachi, telling us that we Christians, Gentile Christians, are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. These phrases describe Israel, but... They've come to describe then the church is what Peter says and everything that God was for the Jews, He's now for us. Remember these things. You have great blessings that you have in Christ. And then in verse 10, he quotes Hosea. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Two different verses in Hosea describing what was the pace of, of Israel. He even said of Israel, you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You once were in a situation where you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is the Gospel, right? We once were people who were not the people of God. And yet God says, now you are My people. And we once were people who were born children of wrath against the Lord, opposing Him and being enemies of Him. He says, now I've shown you My kindness. You who had not received mercy, now you have mercy. It all took place in Christ, and it was all spoken beforehand. And Peter says, "You think about and remember that which was prophesied has come true through faith in Messiah." So when Peter says, "Remember the the words spoken beforehand by the prophets," I think his his words, his thoughts, he's talking about centers on Christ. Remember the the prophetical words that were centering upon Him. Well, I want to show you one last verse here in First Peter that focus f- pulls from the Old Testament prophets again. And this is found in verse 22. 22 is a direct quote from Isaiah 53, verse 9. Talking about Jesus, He says, He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. Straight from Isaiah 53, verse 9. If you see it in your margin there, if it's a little different font, you can see that. But here's what's interesting is that verse 23 is a paraphrase from Isaiah 53. And verse 24 is a paraphrase from Isaiah 53. And verse 25 is a paraphrase from Isaiah 53. I'll pick it up on the similar language, though they're not quoting it exactly. I think Peter surely said, "Remember what was spoken beforehand in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant who would come." Listen to this. While being reviled, verse 23 says he did not revile in return, while suffering, uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now listen to Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before His shears. So He did not open His mouth. He was silent. That's what the prophets had predicted about Christ. He died exactly the way the prophets had anticipated. In the verse 24, He Himself bore sins in His body on the cross so we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by His wounds you were healed. Listen to Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely, our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried right, we're healed because He bore our sorrows for us verse twenty five You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls isaiah fifty three verse six is a verse that many have memorized. Maybe you kids in Awana have memorized this verse, right? All of us like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to its own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You pick up the straying sheep motif. And I'm sure that that Peter had this in mind, Isaiah 53, when he wrote to remember the words spoken beforehand by the prophets. The prophets that Peter quoted in 1 Peter that he calls us to remember all have to do with the coming of the Messiah to come and, and be a rejected stone and a suffering stone. And yet, the promise that if we believe in Him we won't be disappointed Because it's there that we find mercy, we find grace. And that's what Peter's saying to remember. We need to remember that when the Messiah came, He transformed us. And how did He do it? He did it by becoming a sin-bearing substitute on the cross. A sin-bearing substitute on the cross. And that's why we gather this morning, not because we're righteous, but because He's righteous. And that's what we remember as a church all the time. The crucified Savior of the world. Now, at this point, it would be a great segue to the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate in a few moments, but we got one more phrase to deal with. And so if you kind of hold that thought about the sin-bearing substitute, we'll, we'll capture here the end of verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord has inspired it in this order. Remember the first epistle. Remember the second epistle. Remember the words of the prophets which direct us to Jesus. Finally, remember the commandment of Jesus. Right there at the end of verse 2. You should remember the words... You should remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. It's right, difficult. This is difficult to know what he's talking about here. The commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So he's talking about the commandment of Jesus. Several commentators I read put forth different options. One, one said that it's talking about the gospel, talking about the commandment of Christ to cause to come repentance and faith. Some say, well, the the commandment we need to remember is the commandment that deals with the second coming of Christ. Like in verse 3 and following. Some look backwards to chapter 2 and say, the commandment has to do with staying away from false teachers. And I didn't read this, but I think this one has great credibility. It it is the commandment that Christ gave. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Perhaps it was that. And, and, And I think it's almost impossible to know what Peter meant by this phrase. I mean, certainly... He commanded us and called us to repentance and faith. Mark 1.15 says Jesus went about preaching the gospel of God. He said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is a great command of Christ, to repent and turn from your sins and to follow Him. And that view, I think, has credibility, views the gospel of Christ, because the only other time that Peter speaks about the commandment in second uh, Peter's found in second Peter chapter two verse twenty one it'd be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them, and what are they turning from? They're turning from the truth of the gospel, so that view has great credibility there, or the view that says he's talking about the second coming H- has has great truth there i mean that's Jesus certainly spoke in command about his second coming, just a lightning flash comes and flashes across the sky, so will the son coming of the Son of Man be, so be on the alert. You don't know which day or hour the Lord is coming. It's a great command. And the strength of that view is verse 3, that he's going to talk then about the coming of Christ. Jesus will come again, and next week we will look at that. Is that what he means by the commandment of Jesus? Maybe. Uh, Some will look back on chapter 2 and say he's talking about the false teachers. Certainly Jesus did command against the false teachers. Beware of the false prophets, he said who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. That, that view gains strength from the context. He's just talking about the false teachers. And, and I think about this latter view that's the one I, I thought of when Jesus instructed us to love. I mean, you think about when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus took a commandment. He says, this is the greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is just like it, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend the whole law and the prophet. It's almost like Jesus saying, okay, you want to know my one command? Here's the one command that I'm giving you. Love. Love God and love others. And Peter even mentions about how that, that is true. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your soul's, for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart just even talking about there though so you think about all these interpretations i don't know what it i don't know what peter had in mind you know in, in some way though peter calls us to remember all the words of christ It's so really i think a way that we can be safe to apply is think about the commandments that christ has given to us take seriously the gospel accounts you might read through those and see well what does what Christ command of me John Piper wrote this great book, What Jesus Demands from the World. He, he spent, I'm not sure, he took a sabbatical one time, took, whatever, three, four months, just went through all the gospel accounts and then kind of spilled over into Acts a little bit too. But he said, what, what is it that Jesus calls us to? What is the command of Jesus? And he comes up with 50 different commands. So there's, there's a lot there, what it means. But I think what it means is that we ought to follow the words of Christ. We ought to obey Him, ought to love Him, ought to trust Him. And we ought to remember those things, right? So we're reading through the Gospels. Don't forget the words of Jesus. They are important. Red letter editions of the Bible, some like them, some don't. If they do anything, they illustrate 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, about highlighting the words of Jesus, the commands of Jesus to call us to follow. Well, this morning, though, we do have an opportunity to at least remember some of the words that Jesus said in the Lord's Supper. And so I invite you to turn back to Matthew chapter 26. Let me just read through this account of the Lord's Supper. He's there with His disciples. It's the last time He's going to celebrate the Passover with them. He had celebrated it before. He's gathered them together. They are here. He speaks to them. And He institutes this, this ritual. Real, real common at the time of the Passover. Where they, they constantly ate the bread. Constantly drank this cup of wine. And Jesus then took this Passover celebration, which had been celebrated for 1,400 years, and he transforms it to say, Don't look at Moses anymore. Whoops. He uh he tells us then to look to look to Christ. He says, Remember me. Here, here's a story. Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to His disciples. And He said, Take, eat, this is My body. They may have been confused by that, but we know what He meant by that. That, that My body is going to be broken. It's going to be crushed. It's going to be pierced. And, and you eat of it because you need to eat of Me. Just symbolic there of, of, of embracing Christ, taking Him into us. And when He taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them and He said, Drink from it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. They may not have understood everything that's going on there with the the cup, but we do, right? The blood of Christ is what purifies and sanctifies us. Through faith in Him, God looks down upon the shed blood of Christ. He looks down upon the death of Jesus, the slain lamb there upon the cross, and takes His death for what our death is. And the New Covenant then just even speaks about the, the blessings of God which comes into our life that wipes away our sins by the blood of the cross. And Jesus said, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And Jesus may have had His last supper there, but we continue to celebrate His last supper until that final time. So in fact, I see kids back there Now would be a good time to segue. How about we have the kids come in as uh, the men will come and pass uh, pass the the bread around and we will continue on. This is a a sacred time, a joyful time for us to really reflect upon and remember the death of Christ even as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of Me. My message is all about what we need to remember and we need to remember this morning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So we'll do it as we always do. Annie will come and lead us in some songs.